Hey, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Michael D. Jones, recorded in September 2022. Mike is Associate Professor at the University of Tennessee Knoxville's Department of Political Science, and is a faculty fellow at the Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy. He got his PhD in political science back in 2010, and went on to be a postdoctoral fellow at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Currently, he's editor-in-chief of the Policy Studies Journal, and has published in a broad range of journals including Political Psychology, Social Science Quarterly, Policy and Politics, and Critical Policy Studies, amongst others. Mike's primary research interest is policy theory, where he's devoted most of his attention to developing the Narrative Policy Framework, a framework focused on understanding the role of stories in shaping policy processes and outcomes. Our conversation centres around all things narrative, talking about the building blocks that make up stories, why narratives are better than facts, and some of the aspects of storytelling that Mike's research suggests we ought to pay attention to in our own narrative design. It wasn't immediately obvious during our call, but as you'll hear, there were some issues with connectivity throughout our conversation. Even so, I enjoyed the discussion so much and found it to be so relevant and interesting that I figured it ought to be out in the world anyway. So, let's get right into it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Michael D. Jones. First of all, thanks a lot. Great to meet you. Great to have you uh, in in the room, so to speak. To get things started, I just kind of want to pick your brains about a few things. The first one is how, from your point of view, can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? It's a big question. I mean, um, communication, uh, thinking just sort of broadly what the purpose of it is, is probably to establish an understanding between individuals or multiple individuals, right? Um, so if we can communicate the seriousness of the threat of climate change, um, and that resonates with people in a way that, that they don't just intellectually understand the seriousness of it, or they don't outright reject that it's a serious issue, um, but come to emotionally embrace that, um, then then we could potentially solve this very serious collective action problem, right? Um, if we don't do that, uh, we have a working model of what the planet might look like. It's called Venus. So, I mean, I think it's pretty dire. And I, I think um, it has to start with communication, especially when the level of cooperation has to be so high across nation states, which are ultimately sovereign um, and can sort of um, engage in all sorts of, you know, moral hazard, if you want to think about it that way, or, um, you know, just blatant self-interest. Um, communication, I guess, I guess what I'm doing is I'm layering your comment of communication with a, a sort of empathetic understanding, right? We can't just speak to one another. We need to understand the, the nature of this problem and work together collectively to solve it. It starts with talking. Venus. Yikes. Yeah, do you think about that one very often? It's kind of uh, disturbing. <laughs> Since Mike's a narrative scholar, and because we were sure to be talking about narrative quite a lot, I wondered if he could give some indication of what narrative really means 
How can it be defined? Yeah, um, this is a sort of, I think, the aspect of my work that gets me in the most trouble with other narrative scholars. Um, I came to the concept of narrative through, um, through a few things. I loved it as a kid. I played a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons as a kid in the 1980s, and early 1990s. I still play with my kids. So I love stories. I love telling stories. I always have. And then I came to the idea of story in politics or narrative in politics and policy through largely the French, right? The postmoderns. They would typically put out their idea of narrative as being um, incredibly relative, context dependent, non-generalizable, and unscientific. And they thought that all of those things were, were virtues of the narrative concept. And so I, I was uh, dyed in the wool, postmodern. And then I, um, when I went to the University of Oklahoma, I met a scholar by the name of Hank Jenkins Smith. And um, I ended up working with him. And through these um, conversations, sometimes arguments, um, my thinking on narrative began to kind of morph into this idea that it could be a scientific concept. So the, the, the framework that I have helped develop, um, mostly with Mark McBeth and Lou Shanahan, but there's a lot of folks doing it now, is called the Narrative Policy Framework. So I am getting around to answering your question. So what is narrative? Um, for us, narratives are structures that exist in the world. I mean, they're concepts that exist in, in the human brain, right? Um, but in so much that something like money exists or, or these other ideas that we sort of collectively understand together, we think narrative exists as well. And our definition is of a policy narrative, which kind of narrows it. So it's not just narrative in general. I know a lot of folks like to use our work for all sorts of stuff, and it seems to work. Um, but for a policy narrative, you have a problem or a potential problem. Policies don't get made for non-problems proactively, right? It just doesn't happen. Um, if you have a problem, you have harm or potential harm. If you have harm, you have a victim or a potential victim. If you have that harm has to have a source or a cause. And typically that, that cause will be associated with another character in the story, a villain. And that villain can be behaving for lots of reasons, but it's easiest to think about them in terms of operating kind of intentionally. You know, the rub your hands together and cackle maniacally villain that wants to hurt and destroy or the inadvertent villain that is trying to do good things and just you know, stumbles in the wrong direction. Um, then from there, you have uh, a hero character that says, hey, I can fix it, we can fix it, here's what we need to do. And when you identify all those pieces, and they exist in a setting, right? So there's, there's certain physical, geographical, legal, constitutional um, items, evidence, if you want to say, that are sort of props put up on the stage by the narrator and the characters interact with those props and each other and they, and they tell a story. And it turns out that policy narratives aren't, it's not Kafka, right? I mean, these are, these are very, very simple stories, very, very easy to identify. And it turns out that just that handful of concepts that I listed, characters, plot, moral of the story, which is the solution, the setting, super easy to identify. So to the postmodernists um, who really get upset that we do this kind of thing with narrative. I just want to thank them because without their work, we never had the, the inspiration to kind of try this. And so as upset as it makes them, um, they, our work would be impossible without them. 
So, if we know what narrative is, and we know the component parts that make up a narrative, the next question I wanted to ask was, how do people respond differently to narratives than to other types of communication, like descriptive or prescriptive approaches? What makes narrative different? Well, I, I, I think, hopefully I don't go too off, far off-road here, but I think what we might be drilling down towards um, is maybe our model of the individual, right? So in the narrative policy framework, we don't assume self-interested utilitarians maximizing you know, their short-term gains, right? We, we don't assume this sort of instrumental approach to, to behavior. What we assume is that human beings are emotional creatures and that emotions precedes cognitions, right? So you feel something before you think something, even if you don't feel very much. So we sort of assume that the emotive part of being a human being is actually the really important part and the cognitive part in second. This is very much in line with Kahneman's work and Jonathan Haidt's work. And I think, I think all of these scholars would kind of line up in agreement with what I just said. Well, then the MPF takes it a step further and says, well, not only are we not economists or self-interest rational actors, we're, um, in the words of Terry Pratchard, we're storytelling chimpanzees. But we want to tell stories because that's how we understand the world in kind of this linear progression where there's a beginning and there's an end and, you know, characters take on form and we like to ascribe agency. You know, when we talk about characters in the MPF, we're not just talking about people, we're talking about, you know, the environment can be a character. Civil liberties can be under assault. You know, they're a victim, right? And human beings have done this throughout their existence. We ascribe all sorts of agency to clouds and the gods, and, and that's how we want to think. So we want to put the world around us into this narrative box. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying we assume that people want to tell stories and they love to think in stories, and that if you have an academic theory that approximates what people actually do, it's a more valid theory than getting two or three steps separated from, from that process by, you know, creating, the, you know, the economics model of the individual, which feels to me like a complete fabrication. You know, in, in a lot of communication models, they want to say, um, oh, I'll call them old school communication, you know, knowledge deficit stuff, right? Like we just need to educate people. And once we educate them and we'll bring these scientific facts to them, and once we present them to them objectively, sterilely, and without emotion, they will take that information and then reason themselves to the same brilliant place that I've reasoned myself to. The same right. And over and over again, we find that this system just doesn't work very well because that's not what human beings do. And when you kind of unpack narratives and start looking at things, well, what you realize is that characters kind of carry these affective loads that we would expect them to carry. You know, we feel sorry for victims. We don't like villains and we do like heroes. And the more you like the hero, the more likely you are to, you know, sort of buy the, the other elements within the story. True or not, right? This is the other part too. Like what matters more is how that affective load resonates with us. Did we like the villain to begin with? And now we're pissed off. Did we like the hero to begin with? Now we're energized, right? And what's in it, the evidence, the logical arguments are far less um, important. I, I'm not going to go so far as to say they're unimportant or that they never matter, or that they never override the story, but they're far less important than 
how we feel about what we're hearing, whether or not it sort of connects with who we already think we are. To take the title of one of your earlier publications as a jumping off point then, are stories better than just the facts? I think it's difficult to, to unpack where stories stop and where they begin. But suppose I just held up a symbol or a word or a phrase that just said Confederate flag. And, um, you know, from the, the defeated South in the United States. Um, my hypothesis is, is that you just told yourself a story. A short one. Um, you're either incredibly sympathetic to it, uh, maybe you don't know it, or you're hostile to it, right? But also, I didn't just say Confederate flag and nothing happened. There, there's a lot of research that needs to be done to kind of unpack this idea of incomplete narratives. And if, if I, as the narrator, leave a lot of empty space for you as the person receiving the narrative, what happens on that receiving end? And how do people fill in? My, my intuition is, is that stories are made all the time and that we really don't, we don't understand that process very well. So where does the story start and stop? Um, now, with that said, kind of set that over here on the side. With that said, I think in general, we've concluded that, yes, yeah, stories are better. You're going to, once you attach that emotion in a configuration that people understand, you're, more, you're much more likely to be able to persuade them. Next up, I wanted to talk about heroes. What's so special about heroes? What do we need to know about this powerful aspect of a narrative? And how can we use them to our advantage? Well, to, to kind of bracket that, that conversation a bit too, our understanding of heroes that we've studied is a pretty narrow kind of understanding of it. It doesn't get into all the... Uh, nuance and possibilities of the kinds of heroes you can have, you know, I mean, um, for example, we've never put a Dexter kind of hero in one of our experiments, right? So like, I mean, that's, that's an incredible anti-hero that's dark and that sort of thing. Um, I would say this, when I started my dissertation work, my expectation was heavily that the villains were what drove human behavior. Right. It was who we hated and who we saw ourselves in opposition to that was likely to motivate us to action. But after I got my dissertation findings, which um, basically showed that we like heroes more, independent of our prior, right? independent of our worldviews or our ideologies or our education level. When we hear a story, most people on average are going to get an uptick in their emotional response to the, to the hero, period. And that uptick had a strong relationship in, in, in my dissertation about um, climate change in particular, that you were more likely, the more you liked the hero, the more likely you were to believe that climate change was a problem, the more likely you would believe um, that it was a threat to us um, as individuals and as society, and the more likely you were to take action, right? So all of those things. And that's when you control for, it didn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, egalitarian, libertarian, whatever, right? So those were kind of independent. And that, that hero effect, we've continued to see in our other work in other places. The hero as we operationalize it is the entity that's helping. 
that promises to end the harm of the victim or offers a path forward, a call to action. Villains are about blaming, right? And victims are, they, they don't put you in a position of agency if you're a victim in that story. So I think, I think people are attracted to efficacious entities that they can somehow see themselves in. And that empowers them. I actually, I wrote down about climate change being a pretty difficult villain because you couldn't pin it down. So actually, is it is it actually rather necessary to zoom in and find different respective villains, perhaps, than trying to have an all-encompassing beast like climate change? Yeah, I think I think that's the advice I would give: is give people um, sort of um, a means to reach that efficacious point where they can do things that matter, tangible kinds of outcomes that are immediate and associated with with people or entities that can actually accomplish them. And I would also recommend that you do that with a minimization of villainization. We spend a lot of time talking about the villain and their vast capacity. Um, first off, you split people, right? Any, anybody who might associate with that villain departs from your coalition. You also siphon off emotion. Focus on the solutions and focus on the good. Focus on the good. That's nice. We had already touched on it to a point, but I was keen to hear more about the narrative policy framework that Michael had been a part of creating, particularly in terms of what it can be used for. Well, the simplest thing that it allows you to do, and it does this really well, is it allows you to describe um, the elements. We call them narrative components, and then elements are within components. Um, that people use when they tell or even think stories, right? So you can identify the characters, you can, you can identify those pieces that I talked about, um, moral of the story, characters, plot, all those things. And you can sort of identify them generically across different stories, which, I mean, that, that from, a, from a social scientific perspective is incredibly powerful because you, what, you, what that gives you is a generalizable set of concepts that move from you know, climate change, fracking to campaign finance reform. So we can identify the stories people tell and we can see them, those, those stories being compared and contrasted and put to good use in what I think is good use in specific areas. But once you identify what they tell, so let's say I go do a content analysis of your organization's Twitter feed, right? And let's say your organization was interested to see if the things that you're saying really resonate with the people you're trying to talk to. Well, then we could take and we can pull apart those narratives and we can put them in experimental treatments. We can expose different populations to those experimental treatments and we can look at how they respond to different characters and specific mutations to figure out what kind of messaging is the most persuasive, least persuasive, most offensive, et cetera. And I don't know, that feels pretty powerful. And ultimately, um, you could help put out better narratives for outcomes that we deem as socially important. As someone who, you know, analyzes narratives or, you know, at this during this period looked at narratives, are there any that spring to mind as being kind of shockingly effective? Shockingly effective. Um, well, the, the last time I was shocked 
by what I saw um, was with with the the climate change narratives. I really expected villainization to be the most important thing, and um, it didn't really matter who the hero was. It just mattered that you carried a positive message, and that um, I don't even know if positive message is the right way to put it. But with all of the the emotional engine of those stories is sort of wrapped up in, in the solutions and, and the entities that bear them. Um, that was jarring and, and in a good way, right? I felt better about the world to think that, that we've later come to call this angel shifting. And we've seen it in, when we studied, um, wind power on Cape Cod, you know, we saw that the coalition that engaged in, in angel shifting one, we don't know at this point if coalitions or groups angel shift um, angel shifting causes them to win. We don't know if they're angel shifting because they're winning. Right. Yeah. So we've got, it's, it's hard to answer these questions because science moves in, in, an, in a frustratingly incremental pace. Um, but we are finding little things. And I do think stories, um, you're better off telling a story than you are just presenting facts. Um, that goes back to the, the first part of when I kind of wandered off into incomplete narratives. You should never think that you're not telling a story. This is kind of my advice when I talk to people. You're always telling a story. You're just leaving big gaps or you're not. And facts are not in and of themselves neutral. People, as soon as they see them, start slapping affective attachments on them. And in the world we live in, in hyperpolarization, for example, like I'll just throw something random out there, like nanotechnology, not a highly polarized issue, not a very political issue. Give Fox News and MSNBC 20 minutes and they'll make it a highly polarized political issue. And that's, um, I used to say that without any evidence, but now COVID, right? COVID, there was nothing. What we saw with COVID should not have happened. It's a health issue, right? And these are the kinds of issues that we've traditionally been able to not um, have polarizing political narratives associated with. Like, even today, you know, in the United States, if, if, you, if you're still wearing a mask, I'm 90% certain you're a Democrat. Um, back when you weren't wearing one a year ago, I could guess your affiliation. That's weird. Before I let Michael go, I wanted to ask one final question. What did he feel was the single most important thing that communicators should pay attention to in their work? recognize that you're always telling a story. You just present a list of facts. People will start connecting the dots in narrative ways. And you can help them do that by understanding who your audience is and speaking to their value system and their worldview and, and help portray what you're trying to tell them in a story that resonates in a way that generates the kind of emotions you're looking to generate. Or you can stand up there and be frustrated because you've listed your thousand facts and nobody understands the, your brilliance. A lot of people are still operating off of this enlightenment-based, just present the facts kind of model. And I guess the scary part, from my point of view, I'm a fairly progressive guy who believes in social justice and economic equality and all of those sorts of things. Oh my gosh, are the bad guys better storytellers? They're just so good. And the good guys are just so Bad at it. Ouch. What a review. 
but there's no time like the present to roll up our sleeves and get to work on improving things. That's why you're listening in the first place, right? But what stuck with you from this conversation? What will you be applying or considering in your own communications efforts? For me, it's that the effective power in a story is held by the hero, not the villain. All too often in climate change communications, it seems that we're focused on the bad guys, the problems that they cause, and the danger that they pose. Just think about the most recent climate stories that you read, or heard, or saw online. Were they zoomed in on the heroes, or on the villains? Then there's this idea that we're always telling stories, even when we think we aren't. In that case, it would seem better to be strategic in how we guide audiences from one dot to the next, and when we leave them to fill in the blanks themselves. Finally, that telling stories can be more effective than just delivering facts. That's a big one we should all be mindful of, I think. So those are the things that will be keeping my mind racing. But how about you? Thanks to Michael D. Jones for taking the time to share his knowledge and experience with the show. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes. There's some highly recommended reading in there, so make sure you check it out. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. Upcoming shows will dig into greenwashing and how we can avoid being part of the problem, and also the lack of imagination plaguing our climate narratives, as well as much, much more. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this mammoth task, so be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.